some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 2, Who Are You? There are many small towns across the United States that are basically retired. Their busiest days are behind them. And if the people that live there work, they work somewhere else. Adams, Tennessee should be one of those towns. It's about an hour outside of Nashville. The trains no longer stop there, and the interstate has long since carried motorists away. It consists of two and a half square miles, encompassing a couple of hundred households and just over 600 people. There are fields of corn and tobacco. There are a few stores, a cemetery, and a historic log cabin that dates back to 1810 one of the last physical remnants of the family that is at the center of this story. But the tranquility of this rustic community is continually disturbed by the carloads of tourists making their pilgrimage to Adam's one and only attraction, a haunted cave. But there's more to it than that. Adam's is also home to a legend. And at the heart of that legend is a mystery, a murder mystery. In 1820, a man was murdered in his bed, and as his family gathered around his body to mourn, the killer confessed to the crime and mocked their grief. And yet, we still don't know who did it, because this is a supernatural murder mystery, and the victim, John Bell, was murdered by a ghost. The centerpiece of life in Adams is the old high school, which serves as a combination mall and community center. As of 2014, among the businesses there was Buzzard Creek Antiques. On March 5th, 2014, a video was posted on YouTube by a paranormal investigation show called Enigmatic Anomalies. In the video, the correspondent interviews the antique store's owner, Greg. Since the subject of the show is the paranormal, Greg starts off by talking about how people often bring him rocks that have been taken from the famous haunted cave. They complain that they've been plagued by bad luck ever since, and now want the rocks returned, but they're afraid to go back. The interview soon shifts to an antique chair that is on display in the store. The chair is roped off so that no one can sit in it. It is scarred and pitted with age, but otherwise seems unremarkable. Greg explains that on the day he opened the store, a couple arrived unsolicited and insisted that he take the chair. The couple had bought it at a yard sale seven years earlier from a descendant of the Bell family. They were bringing it home and they made him promise not to sell it. They said they couldn't keep the chair, but they didn't want it sold to some unsuspecting person. When Greg inquired further, they admitted that over time the chair had become the focal point for a lot of strange activity in the house. And that activity had culminated in an attack on one of their grandchildren. 
the child had been playing around the chair when it had levitated him into the air and hurled him against the wall. Now they had to be rid of it. They also gave Greg an envelope containing documentation of his history, as well as a book concerning the fate of its original owner, John Bell. Greg promised them that he would not sell the chair and reiterated that promise in the video, but he later forsook it, selling the chair not once, but at least three times. Only each time the buyer brought the chair back, insisting that they couldn't keep it. But the chair, for all of its creepiness, is only a signpost marking the outer edge of the mystery that has haunted this town for nearly 200 years. To get closer to the heart of it, one must descend into the depths of that haunted cave. Today, it is a place where visitors describe hearing strange whispering sounds and capturing ghostly photos with their cameras. A place to which parents bring their children to give them a creepy thrill. A place that was first visited by children 200 years ago. According to one legend, in the early part of the 19th century, a group of children, residents of what was then known as Adam Station, set out to explore the cave. Perhaps even then, there were stories about ghosts and witches circulating about it, drawing in the thrill-seekers and the curious, and firing the imaginations of local children. One of those children may have been Elizabeth Bell, the youngest daughter of the owner of the property on which the cave was located. It was not always accessible, at times, water flowed from the entrance, making it difficult to enter. But it was now dry, and they were determined to see what they could find inside. They had ventured several hundred feet into the darkness, when one of the boys became stuck in the rocks and began to scream for help. Something grabbed him by the legs and pulled him free, dragging him through the mud back to the cave's mouth. The children ran home, their adventure concluded. They had no way of knowing what they had awoken. Something came out of that cave, and it would not go back to sleep. At least not yet. It had fixed its attention not on that gaggle of muddy boys, but on Elizabeth Bell and her family. In 1804, 54-year-old John Bell immigrated with his wife Lucy, their children, and his slaves from North Carolina to Adams Station along the Red River in Tennessee. He bought a nice house with a thousand acres right along the river. The family prospered, and in time, he became one of the wealthiest and most respected men in the area. They lived there for 13 years before the nightmare began. The details of what came to be known as the Bell Witch Haunting were published in 1894 in a book called An Authenticated History of the Bell Witch, by journalist Martin Van Buren Ingram. It was based on a manuscript and notes by Richard Williams Bell, who as a child lived through the events that culminated in the death of his father. These materials were given to Ingram in 1891 by his friend, James Allen Bell, Richard's son, in the hopes that he would write an accurate account of what had happened and dispel some of the more outlandish stories that had evolved over the preceding 70 years. If anything, Ingram's account had the opposite effect. Part of Ingram's story is corroborated by a book published in 1886 
called Goodspeed's History of Tennessee, but no one other than Ingram has ever reported seeing the original manuscript and notes. What he describes is disturbing. It started with little things. While walking through his cornfield, John Bell noticed a strange animal that looked like a deformed dog. When he tried to get a closer look, it ran away. A slave on the farm named Dean encountered a large black dog as he returned from visiting his wife on a neighboring property. He said that the dog had two heads. Sightings of strange dogs, birds, and even people were noticed and remarked upon by various members of the Bell family, but did not overly concern them. Then one night, the family was awoken by a loud banging on the front door. No doubt thinking one of his neighbors was in trouble, John Bell rushed to open it, but there was no one there. The next night it happened again, and it continued happening night after night. Then one evening, they heard a banging sound on the outer walls of the house. Bell and his sons went to investigate, but found nothing. They thought that someone was playing pranks on them and grew frustrated that they could never catch the perpetrator. But the banging noises were soon joined by the sound of claws raking the outside of the house, and they began to worry that they were dealing with something more serious than a mischievous neighbor. Bell gave strict instructions that the family was to keep the incident secret. The sounds did not stay outside the house for long. One night, the boys heard a scratching noise in their bedroom. At first, they thought it was a rat gnawing on a bedpost, but the sounds stopped as soon as a candle was lit. The room was searched, nothing was found, the candle was extinguished, and then the gnawing started again. A few nights later, as they lay in bed, something snatched off their covers. They pulled them back on, only to have them snatched away again. Members of the family noticed that sometimes, in the quiet of the house, they could hear a sound as if someone were choking. They heard the sound of heavy stones hitting the roof, but when someone climbed up to look, there was nothing there. Next, they heard chains being dragged across the floors. Night after night, the noises continued, and the family, deprived of rest, reached its breaking point. Bell decided that he could no longer keep the problem secret and consulted with his neighbor, James Johnson, who, along with his wife, spent a night in the Bell residence. As before, the sounds started and grew more violent. The house shook, chairs fell over, Johnson yelled out, who are you? What do you want? And everything went quiet. Everyone waited in silence, but there was no response. Then the noises started again, worse than before. The next morning, Johnson advised Bell that he should seek the help of others. The phantom noises continued, but among the banging and the crashing and the clawing, the choking noises heard before grew louder and over time became audible whispers, and soon the whispers grew more distinct. They were able to make out words and decipher sentences, and again they asked the question, Who are you? What do you want? And this time a whispering voice answered from a dark corner that it was a spirit that had once been happy, but was now disturbed. And for a time, that was all that it would say. With the help of James Johnson, John Bell gathered his neighbors 
and they set about trying to figure out what was happening and how to stop it. At night, some of them stood guard outside, while others gathered within the house to bear witness to what was happening and on occasion to question the spirit. As always, the most important questions were, Who are you? What do you want? And in time, the spirit answered again. It said that it was the spirit of someone who was buried in the woods whose grave had been disturbed, that someone had brought a human jawbone into the bell house, and that one of the teeth had broken loose and fallen beneath the floorboard. Questioning his children and the neighbors, John Bell found that the story was true, and he ordered the floor torn up and they sifted through the dirt. But they didn't find anything. The spirit mocked their efforts and told them that it had lied, and then it went silent again. People now began to show up in numbers, neighbors, the curious, even some experts in matters both mysterious and paranormal. The first of these was a detective who introduced himself as Mr. Williams. He was a skeptic and was determined to prove that this was all a hoax. He was welcomed into the house, but it's unclear exactly what sort of investigation he conducted. That night and the following day, the spirit was mostly silent, taking no action except for the occasional knock on the door or a scratching on the walls. Williams proclaimed that the drama was a fraud being perpetrated by the entire Bell family, which led to heated words being exchanged with John Bell. But eventually everyone calmed down and settled in for the night. Williams slept on a straw mat on the living room floor. Later that night, he woke up to find that he couldn't move, that he was pinned to the mattress. He could feel the entity on top of him. It began to strike and scratch him, and he screamed. Someone entered the room and lit a candle. Instantly, the entity was gone, and a sobbing Detective Williams was left to try to compose himself. Visibly injured and terrified, he spent the rest of the night sitting in a chair holding a candle and waiting for the sun to rise so that he wouldn't have to leave in the dark. Another man, Dr. Mize of Simpson County, Kentucky, arrived claiming to be a wizard. He stated that he was an expert in the occult and had experience casting out demons. During the first four days of his stay, nothing was heard from the spirit. However, on the fifth night, they found Dr. Mize severely shaken. He said that the spirit had spoken to him, that it knew more about witchcraft than he did, and that there was nothing that he could do for them. He left early the next morning. The entity harassed and annoyed every member of the family, except for Lucy. Why it left her alone is unknown, but it seemed most interested in John Bell and his daughter Elizabeth. To John, it displayed nothing but unremitting hatred, but with Elizabeth, acts of cruelty were interspersed with episodes of kindness. People were still coming to the house to experience the phenomenon for themselves. And again, the question was asked, who are you? What do you want? Now the spirit told a different story. It said that it was the ghost of an immigrant who had buried a treasure nearby, but had died before she could retrieve it. It said that it wanted Elizabeth to have the treasure and gave directions on where it could be found. Some of the men from the community went to the location and following the entity's directions, proceeded to excavate the area, but they found nothing. When they returned, the spirit told them that it had lied and again mocked their efforts. 
and kindness returned to cruelty. What started as harassment soon escalated into vicious attacks. On several occasions, the entity pulled Elizabeth out of bed by her hair and dragged her across the floor. It would strike her hard enough to leave her face covered in bruises and welts. Her parents sent her to stay with neighbors in the hopes that getting her away from the house would remove her from the danger. But the entity followed, and she was attacked wherever she went. Eventually, she returned home. It is interesting to note that the entity hated the Africans enslaved on the Bell Farm, and for the most part left them alone, only harassing them if they entered the house. Though it seemed to have a particular dislike for Dean, the man who had encountered what he described as a two-headed black dog. While out in the woods on another occasion, the spirit attacked him, but he managed to escape, returning to the farm bloodied but alive. Worried for him, his wife, who may have been something of a witch herself, made him a witch ball, hair rolled into a ball and covered with beeswax. It was thought to provide protection from evil spirits. Lucy noticed the spirit's aversion to the slaves and ordered a young woman named Anki to sleep under her and her husband's bed in the hopes that the spirit would leave them alone. But instead, the spirit attacked Anki and drove her from the house. The family persisted in their efforts to put a name to their tormentor and continued to ask, Who are you? What do you want? And in answer, the ghost again changed its story, saying that it was the ghost of a child buried in North Carolina, the state from which the Bells had emigrated. Every time the question was asked, the entity changed its answer. Its identity was so fluid that the answers became meaningless. Until it was asked that question one last time. Who are you? What do you want? And it answered that it was a witch, and that its name was Kate. Everyone in that community understood the significance of that name. Kate Batts was a neighbor of the Bells, and not one that was well-liked. Years before, when her husband grew ill, she had taken over running his business affairs, something that was frowned upon in that time and place. She was considered eccentric and overly sensitive, and was shunned by many of those living in Adam's Station. She was also known to bear a grudge against John Bell over a financial deal involving slaves, for which he had been convicted of usury by the state of Tennessee. In short, she was exactly the type of woman who was susceptible to being labeled a witch. Women who lived on the margins of society, especially older women, had always lived with the possibility of being cast in the role of a witch, a scapegoat to blame for any misfortune suffered by those whom they had offended. Though in Adams Station, Tennessee, in the early 19th century, the accusation no longer presented a mortal danger, it originated from the same impulse that had given rise to the terrors of Salem just over 120 years earlier. Though they took to calling it Kate, it was not really thought that Kate was herself a witch, but instead that she had somehow conjured the spirit of a witch. The harassment and abuse continued, and Elizabeth's condition grew more severe. She had begun to lapse into unconsciousness and would sometimes stop breathing for up to a minute. It seemingly drove her to the precipice of death, and then suddenly, inexplicably, it stopped. And from that day forward, it left Elizabeth alone. For so long they had repeated the question, Who are you? 
What do you want? And in answer to the first question, they had received story after story, lie after lie. But to the second question, they had always gotten the truth. Whoever this was, whatever this was, it wanted John Bell dead. The stress of the situation had long since begun to take a toll on John. He developed muscle spasms in his face and swelling in his mouth that rendered him unable to eat. One day, while walking with his son to the hog pen, John Bell was attacked by the spirit. It struck him down and began tearing off his clothes. He started to go into convulsions. When the episode had passed, with tears streaming down his face, he said, Oh, my son, my son, not long will you have a father to wait on so patiently. I cannot much longer survive the persecutions of this terrible thing. It is killing me by slow tortures, and I feel the end is nigh. His son helped him up and back inside, where he went to bed and never left the house again. The deterioration of his health accelerated. One morning when his family brought him breakfast, they were unable to wake him. A doctor was called and while examining him, noticed a vial next to his bed. No one seemed to know where it had come from. The doctor fed some of its contents to a cat, which promptly went into spasms and died. The doctor questioned the family again about the vial, but it was the spirit who answered that it had given old Jack a dose while he was asleep and that he was done for. Within a few days, John Bell was dead. Strangely, someone in the family threw the vial into the fireplace, where it was destroyed before its contents could be more closely examined. The consensus was then, and remains among many even today, that the Bell family was haunted by, and even harmed by, a witch, or at least the ghost of a witch. If you will recall, this story started with the cave. Was it possible that the entity encountered in that cave was the ghost of a witch? There is an odd historical connection between witches and caves. One famous example is that of Ursula Santhiel, who was born in a cave in North Yorkshire, England in 1488, a cave that was also a source of water and one thought to be a place of mystical power. The baby was deformed and later legends would tell of how she was born in the midst of a great storm, that she was the daughter of the devil, and that her birth was accompanied by the smell of sulfur. Her mother soon gave her away and disappeared. When Ursula grew older, she returned to the cave where she was born and lived there, becoming known as a witch and a soothsayer. She married a carpenter named Toby Shipton, and even though they never had any children, she was known as Mother Shipton. She wrote prophetic poetry that predicted, among other things, the Great Fire of London in 1666. In 1692, after the witch trials in Salem left 19 people hanging on Gallows Hill, one of three sisters accused of witchcraft, the only one to escape, fled to Framingham, Massachusetts, and spent the winter living in a cave. Others fled south. Just under a hundred years later, in Fairfield, South Carolina, it seemed that the events of Salem were repeating themselves. A man accused his own mother of being a witch and of causing his cow to levitate in the air and drop, breaking its neck. Another man claimed to have been turned into a horse and ridden to a grand convocation of witches. Vigilantes seized four people and took them to a nearby farm where an illegal trial was held. 
they were convicted and then tortured before they were released. Is it possible that like a hundred years before, someone may have fled, perhaps this time to Tennessee? This is of course idle speculation on my part. It is unlikely that any of the accused were practitioners of black magic. And why should the condemnation of Kate Batts be any more believable than the stories of a lost tooth or a buried treasure? But if the entity known as the Bell Witch wasn't the ghost of a person whose grave was disturbed, or the ghost of someone guarding a buried treasure, or the ghost of a witch fleeing persecution, then what was it? Or as was so often asked by those in its presence, who was it? Who murdered John Bell? Like any good mystery, the killer may have been the person you would least suspect, the person that had suffered right along with John Bell and seemingly almost died, Elizabeth Bell. The supernatural manifestation described in the accounts of the Bell Witch most closely resemble what we would today call a poltergeist. Poltergeist is a German word for pounding spirit. They are a type of ghost known for making loud noises, moving objects, and have been known to physically attack those in its presence. They often seem to be attracted to teenage girls. But some parapsychologists believe that a poltergeist is not an entity at all, but is caused by psychokinesis, the ability, among other things, to move objects or even start fires with the mind. For skeptics and scientists, belief in psychokinesis is just as speculative, if not more so, than the belief in ghosts. But if we assume for a moment that it was Elizabeth Bell all along, then we are left with a new and more disturbing question. Why? Why was she so emotionally disturbed? Why did she keep it a secret? Why did she focus her hate on herself and her father? One author has suggested a horrific answer. The novel The Bell Witch in American Haunting by Brent Monahan, published in 2000, and the movie that followed it, 2005's An American Haunting, starring Donald Sutherland and Sissy Spacek, both suggest that John Bell was molesting his daughter and that it was this sexual abuse that caused Elizabeth Bell's psychokinesis to erupt. They further suggest that it was Elizabeth that poisoned her father and that her mother helped her to cover it up. This explanation has not found many friends among those accustomed to the traditional version of the Bell Witch story. Unfortunately, there is no real answer to this mystery. There are 194 years of legend, folklore, and speculation obscuring what really happened on the Bell Farm between 1817 and 1820. We know that a family was tormented, that a community was in an uproar. We know that a man died. And we know that there was a voice whispering in the dark. But the question remains, whose voice? This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded by Mike Shear at Charleston Sound Studios. It was produced by Podcast Motor. If you enjoyed this episode, please support this podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you prefer. Ratings and reviews will make it easier for listeners to find us. And remember to hit the subscribe button. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter and at pleasingterrors.com. 
Thank you for listening. I'll speak with you again in two weeks.